0: This is Evercore Edge, Evercore's thought leader sharing insights on today's markets and events.
1: Welcome to our thought leadership series, The Evercore Edge. Today, in our inaugural episode, we'll be discussing the macroeconomic environment as well as the environment for M&A. Our first guest today is Krishna Guha. Krishna is a vice chairman of Evercore ISI and the head of our global policy and central bank strategy. Uh, Evercore's ISI policy team is ranked number one, and Mr. Guha is ranked number one as ranked by asset managers. Couldn't be a more timely topic for our clients. So, Krishna, a lot going on. What a tumultuous year. What is your current take on the macroeconomic
2: environment? Well, the first thing I'd say, Bill, is that this is one of the most complicated Mm -hmm. macro environments I've seen in my Mm -hmm. professional lifetime. You know, Obviously, the standout feature right now mm-hmm. is the surprisingly strong and persistent inflation impulse that mm-hmm. we've seen really almost in every part of the world mm-hmm. coming out of the pandemic. But that's not the only thing going on, mm-hmm. of course. We still have the pandemic itself, yeah. particularly in China, having major impacts on economic activity. And of course, we have the brutal return mm-hmm. of hard geopolitics mm-hmm. in the form of Russia's invasion of Ukraine mm-hmm. and the energy shock that that is generated, particularly in Europe. So this is a world the like we haven't seen for a while. We're seeing big supply shocks mm-hmm. in product markets, in labor, and in energy mm-hmm. of the likes we haven't seen in decades. Mm-hmm. It's also an environment, I would say, where, you know, like the old saying goes, uh, how every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Mm-hmm. There are specific things in each major economy mm-hmm. that policymakers business people, mm-hmm. market participants are having to grapple with. So mm-hmm. you know, in the US, uniquely, I think we did probably, in retrospect, overdo some of the stimulus. Mm-hmm. We have an economy which has too much demand mm-hmm. now needs to be cooled down. In Europe, of course, you're ground zero for the war and the energy shock. Mm-hmm. And China, of course, struggling mm-hmm. to find a strategy for dealing with COVID and an mm-hmm. exit out of this zero COVID regime. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, the Fed is playing an important role here. They seem to be giving direction, but whenever they make an announcement, the market seems very surprised. Where do you think the Fed is
2: going, and how are they communicating it to the market? So, as you know, Bill, I used to uh, work at the Fed. I was at the Management Committee in New York, Mm -hmm. so I stay in very close touch uh, with what my former colleagues are up to Mm -hmm. there. Uh, What I would say is that this has been a very difficult environment for the Fed to navigate. Uh, Originally, they were a bit off the pace when the inflation began to pick up, Mm -hmm. largely because they were trying not to shock and surprise the markets Mm -hmm. with sudden moves on QE or on rates. They've been playing catch up Mm -hmm. more recently. As you rightly say, the market still hangs on every word coming out of the Fed. Mm Part of that is that this is an unfamiliar cycle, like of which we've never seen, business cycle. Mm -hmm. Uh, So people don't really know how the Fed's going to respond. Mm -hmm. The Fed also is trying to figure things out a little bit on the fly. Mm -hmm. You see their markets overreact at times, as is not uncommon with the Fed. Mm -hmm. I will say the Fed also has struggled at Mm -hmm. times this year to articulate a clear framework Mm -hmm. for how they're operating. And their tone has varied a bit too much. Mm-hmm. from one meeting or speech to the next yep. uh, in ways that have encouraged markets mm-hmm. to, you know, to pull left, to pull right, instead of necessarily having a very consistent view mm-hmm. of what they're trying to accomplish. And is the consistent view out there now, do you think? Well, I think Powell's Jackson Hole speech was helpful. Mm-hmm. right? In the previous Fed meeting, Mm. uh, Powell had sounded a little bit Mm. optimistic, a little bit dovish, if you like, Mm -hmm. in the unscripted Q&A part of Mm -hmm. the press conference. And this set market participants wondering whether a Fed pivot uh, back in a more risk-friendly direction could Mm -hmm. be just around the corner. And actually, if you look at what happened to S&P and so on in the days after that Mm -hmm. July meeting, you know, people were running risks. Uh, S&P was surging mm-hmm. uh, prematurely, in my view. And you know, we, yeah. we warned clients at that time, look, this, you, know, you have to aim off a little bit that tone shift. We didn't think that was a signal so much as a bit of noise. Mm-hmm. And the, the Fed would have to come out uh, and set the record straight, as Powell did in Jackson Hole. Mm-hmm. So what did he say there? He basically said mm-hmm. that, look, right now, Uh, there is one mission that dominates the Fed's thinking, and that is the mission of restoring price stability. Mm -hmm. And in this context, they're not going to declare victory too soon. Mm -hmm. That The lesson from the 1970s above all Mm -hmm. is that you have to finish the job. Mm -hmm. And the costs of putting up that mission accomplished banner uh, before you actually have inflation properly locked down, Mm -hmm. risking that it becomes embedded in the economy, over the medium to longer haul, just massively dominate the costs of overdoing it a bit and potentially getting a recession.
1: Okay, you've been around this uh, uh, issue for a while. How come there's so much difficulty in defining whether we're in a recession, going (laughs) to be in a recession? And then as far as uh, Europe is concerned, everyone seems convinced they're going to be in a
2: recession. What's your take on where the economy's going? So to take US and then Europe in turn, look, the u.s growth clearly has slowed significantly since the start of this year mm-hmm. that's not unintended no. that's actually what the fed is trying to accomplish mm-hmm. to cool things down to bring demand back into balance with supply mm-hmm. and help to uh, make sure that when these one-time inflation pressures drop out we're not left with an inflation rate that's stuck at an elevated level the labor market has stayed pretty robust in fact hiring is still strong right mm-hmm. there is still a big gap between uh, the firms' demand for workers and the availability of workers, partly because the labor participation is slowly, slowly recovering from the pandemic. Yeah. So I certainly don't think the U.S. is in a recession right now. Uh, when you listen to you know, economists debating, mm-hmm. are we going to have a recession going forward? It really boils down to whether you think you can get the inflation to cool off without a large and sustained increase in unemployment. Larry Summers, who I respect greatly, Mm -hmm. will tell you that if you look at the historic record, it's just very hard to find examples where you can bring inflation down this much Mm -hmm. without a proper substantial increase in unemployment of the kind you have in a recession. What I would say, though, is that this inflation Mm -hmm. and this business cycle is like nothing we've ever seen before. Mm -hmm. So while the historic record frankly says should assume we're gonna to have to have a recession to get rid of this inflation. Not clear to me that that's the case. I think a bumpy rebalancing is still very much achievable, but it'll be a period of weaker growth, be a period of weaker demand for labor. Unemployment will probably move up some, half a point, maybe three quarters of a point, maybe even a point. So it'll feel like a recession for a lot of folks, even if it, strictly speaking, uh, doesn't meet that definition of a full-blown recession. Now Europe, whole different ballgame there. Uh, Because in addition to a number of the issues the U.S. faces, Europe is being hit by this giant energy shock coming out of the Russia-Ukraine war and the, if you like, energy warfare that's being conducted between the West and Russia across gas, uh, in the European sense that means natural gas Mm -hmm. and gasoline or oil, both sanctions from the West and actions taken by Russia to weaponize energy. Mm -hmm. Of course, what they're trying to do is to inflict enough economic pain on Europe so Europe will pull back from supporting Ukraine Mm -hmm. and Putin can achieve his objectives there. It does look right now that it's going to be very hard for Europe to avoid a recession. Mm -hmm. Indeed, the economy looks to be moving into recession right now you talk about a lot of
1: complications. For sure. Our CFOs are having a tough time and how do they predict interest rates? What do you see
2: the near term and intermediate term? Any insights on that front? So in the the US case, I think that we have a reasonable amount of near term visibility. Mm -hmm. I think the Fed is indicating that they want to get rates up pretty quickly to somewhere close to 4% on Fed funds. Mm -hmm. Might be one tick lower, might be one tick higher. Mm -hmm. They want to get there by around the end of this year or Q1 of next year. And their working hypothesis right now Hmm. is that they would probably then be able to go on hold and let that work its way through the system. Remember there are time lags here, right? Monetary policy works with time lags in the economy. Remember also that the Fed is just in the early stages of QT Mm-hmm. It's unwinding its QE portfolio. Yeah. And so even when they go on hold on rates, mm-hmm. they will still be tightening policy mm-hmm. by reducing their balance sheet mm-hmm. through that QT process. So I think that piece seems relatively clear at this point. The big unanswered question is, of course, how the economy, and particularly inflation, are going to respond to these policy settings. Mm-hmm. Will inflation continue mm-hmm. to cool off? Will wages start to cool off and stabilize? Or do we find out that, yes, we've come off, we're just right now coming off peak inflation, but inflation then gets stuck, say, 35 to 4%, lower than it is today, but way too high, f- high for the Fed. If that were to be the case, mm-hmm. then the Fed would have to resume tightening. Push rates higher and then, unlike today, deliberately seek to engineer a full blown recession to squeeze that inflation out of the system. A couple of factors I'd ask you how policymakers
1: think of. We've had a very tough high yield market through the summer. Uh, At certain areas, it's been shut. Um, Is that something that fits into the calculus
2: of how we set interest rates at the Fed and elsewhere? So, yes, it does, right? Um, The Fed you know obviously controls just the risk-free rate Mm -hmm. and also its balance sheet these days Mm -hmm. Uh, but the fed is attentive to what is happening across what in the jargon we call financial conditions Mm -hmm. broadly considered so uh, that includes obviously you know not just risk-free rates but mortgage rates which are important for the household sector it does very much include uh, corporate spreads, mm-hmm. which determine the cost of debt finance for the mm-hmm. corporate sector, and also the quantity availability mm-hmm. of financing via capital markets. It also includes equities, and it also includes the foreign exchange value of the dollar. So you could sort of think of this a little bit like a spider chart, right? At any given point in time, you know, you might have equities moving up, mm-hmm. or maybe credit spreads doing something, dollar doing something. The Fed is not trying to micromanage this day to day, it can't. Mm-hmm. but The Fed, over time, needs to make sure on a somewhat lower frequency basis that those changes in financial conditions Mm -hmm. are consistent with what it's doing with its actual instruments Mm -hmm. and consistent with what it thinks is needed Mm -hmm. to achieve its economic goals, which in this case, of course, very much is essentially about bringing the inflation rate down.
1: Well, consistent with that. What about China? I think with the expectation that COVID Restrictions will lift at least a little bit. Is China gonna come roaring back? What's the implication on monetary policy?
2: So China obviously you know, is an is extremely interesting case right now because they chose a different path mm-hmm. from the West in terms of how they were going to deal with COVID, mm-hmm. uh, initially very successful in, in containing the spread, containing the fatalities and so on, that's a matter of pride for the Chinese leadership. Uh, but I think it's increasingly clear. Frankly, we've been said this it's been clear for several quarters now, that they've reached something of a dead end uh, with their zero COVID uh, policy, mm-hmm. and they're struggling to find an effective exit strategy out of this. And you know, they, this intertwines not just the medical side of this, the economic side of this, but also the political side of this, because the conquest of COVID mm-hmm. uh, is a core political accomplishment of Chinese uh, President Xi. Mm-hmm. And so it's a politically very sensitive issue if it turns out that they're actually going to have to live with or unleash uh, some COVID waves uh, subsequent to relaxing that policy, very, very reluctant to do that. Mm. Big focus on social stability and political stability, obviously going into the party Congress uh, in the fall where she is expecting to secure that uh, in modern times, unprecedented Mm. additional term as China's leader. The general working hypothesis is that once he has that in the bag, and more broadly, the maneuvering over the Standing Committee of the Politburo and other top jobs is over, that China can gradually move towards articulating an exit strategy here. But it requires them to be confident that their domestic mRNA uh, jabs actually work at a sufficient uh, effectiveness level with acceptable side effects, where there are rumors uh, in China. It requires that they have a sort of, you know, a social and political strategy for dealing with such waves as do break out as you try to open up. And the problem there is their healthcare infrastructure is very poorly built out. So bottom line, I think we should think of this as a process, not an event. Hmm. It's going to take them, I think, realistically, six months or so in an optimistic scenario to find their way progressively, step by step, out of zero COVID. So as they do, yes, China can resume its general role as a growth engine for the world. I'd just say two things. The first is that they're grappling with some other serious challenges, real estate related. Uh, the crackdown on private entrepreneurs, particularly in the tech sector and other things, continue to weigh on activity. And the other thing is just to be realistic about the timeline, right? It's not that the morning after the party congress, it's, it, we're off to the races, right? Expect this phenomenon to play out over the course of the first half of next year, but really more in terms of macro impacts, perhaps more building into the middle of the year.
1: Well, let's go over to Europe then. Uh, the resiliency of the Ukrainians, very surprising. How do policymakers figure that into their calculus?
2: Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, we're, we're uh, you know, that's, you, know they, you say we're all Berliners, I think we're all Ukrainians these days, right, in terms of sharing pride in, in what the uh, Ukrainian people have accomplished in standing up for their freedom. Um, you know, I'm not a military expert, so I won't offer you my amateur speculations there. What I will say is that it's been clear for a while Uh, that after uh, Putin's initial Mm -hmm. 72-hour victory plan went rather badly off track, Mm -hmm. Uh, he had gravitated towards a theory of victory Mm -hmm. whereby uh, he would be able to seize and retain large swaths of Ukrainian territory and then use this hybrid warfare harnessing energy, particularly the natural gas on which Europe's industry is dependent, Mm -hmm. to essentially uh, inflict a deep and severe recession in Europe that would then generate enough uh, political instability uh, in order for Europe to come to terms, in effect, and you know, enforce on Ukraine a, a settlement favorable to Russian interests and, and, and dominant influence over uh, Ukraine subsequently. It does look like Putin has miscalculated once again uh, in terms of the Ukrainians themselves, with, you know, at the time of recording, uh, this amazing uh, counteroffensive unfolding with great success in the Northeast. I think it would be, uh, perhaps, Too optimistic to think that this is is anything close to the end, but could be the beginning of the end. Uh, Certainly, it moves us into a different phase. And what I would say about this is that, on the one hand, um, the aggregate risk distribution over the medium term probably improves as it becomes... Uh, you know, the factors that might push Russia towards a realistic settlement continue to build. Uh, but, it, but in the near term, what's happening is a bit of a barbell effect. Mm-hmm. Risks to markets, to the upside and the downside tails mm-hmm. are going up. So on the upside tail, you could have a sudden collapse of the Russian regime, maybe even a coup against Putin, not forecasting now. I think it would be foolish to forecast it, mm-hmm. but non-zero possibility. On the downside tail, unfortunately, very serious risk of hyper escalation uh, from a more embattled uh, Putin regime, Mm -hmm. extending to the use of uh, more extended use of WMD uh, in the far tail, the use of tactical nuclear devices on the battlefield, Mm -hmm. but also uh, cutting oil supply, Mm -hmm. uh, potentially cyber attacks or other strikes against supply lines out of NATO countries, all things that would be destabilizing for markets Mm -hmm. in the short term. So the real takeaway I think there is just, this is a highly dynamic situation. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks had figured we were just settling into Mm -hmm. a kind of a stalemate through the winter and we'd get back to this in the spring. This is dynamic right now, and so everyone needs to be on it.
1: Another topic that's close to home in the US at least is the upcoming midterm elections. Um, A lot of political interest, any economic impact we should be looking at?
2: So I think the, you know, the we are not expecting to see large shifts in economic policy coming out of the midterm elections. Mm. You know, uh, my colleague Tobin Marcus, mm. who leads our US uh, political analysis in my team, uh, his latest assessment is, you know, that the Senate very much looks like, you know, it's up for grabs either ways at this point with the Dems having a chance to hold. Um, House still looks like it goes. Republican, but it's by a smaller majority and less absolutely categorically certain than seemed the case Mm -hmm. um, some while back. So it it looks like we would be going into a period of of divided government. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, given the state of partisanship, Mm -hmm. we might not expect that to accomplish uh, sadly too much during this period of time. There are some things like support for Ukraine that would likely continue, Mm -hmm. you know, quite firmly through that period of time. Uh, The other thing I would just say is that somewhat against, against uh, the odds, uh, the administration and its allies in Congress uh, did manage to pull off a significant fiscal and climate package mm-hmm. uh, in, in recent months. And so, you know, with that delivered, I think there's less on the to-do list, if you like. Okay. Krishna, look, we have a lot of our
1: business leaders coming back from Labor Day looking forward to the next couple of months of business act- activity. Any final comments you'd like to leave for us?
2: Look, I would just say that this is an environment mm-hmm. the likes of which we haven't seen in decades. Quite possibly, one that we've actually never, for which there's no clear uh, mm-hmm. historical analog. Certainly not within the lifetimes of our current decision makers. So at the risk of saying something that perhaps is, uh, I- I, you know, is obvious. This is an environment in which we all need to be very humble. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to be flexible. We need to be nimble. Uh, it it doesn't serve as well to have a fixed view of how the world is going to evolve at a moment like this. So you know, I think uh, you know, corporate leaders who are able to keep their focus on medium-term opportunities but stay flexible in terms of being you know, well-positioned to respond to more surprises that get thrown at us in the periods ahead, that's probably the best formula I can speak of today.
1: Well, Krishna, thank you for joining us with all of your insights. Uh Christian's available for our clients uh, to talk about uh, observations that may touch the economy and the business. But Again, Krishna, thanks for joining us today. Huge pleasure, Bill. You bet. All the very best. Now, we'll turn from the macroeconomic environment uh, to how that macroeconomic environment is impacting M&A. And we couldn't have two better guests to discuss this. Uh, two of my uh, partners, uh, Roger Altman, the founder of Evercore and a senior chairman of the firm, and Naveen Nataraj, uh, a co-leader of our advisory franchise and the leader of our tech M and A business. So we we'll look forward to a lively discussion. So, Roger, maybe we'll start off. Uh, what are clients asking you? What topics are on top of mind now? We come after Labor Day.
0: I think the number one topic is the macroeconomic environment, uh, inflation, recession risk. Uh, the course of monetary policy Mm -hmm. and how far that may go and what it may mean, Uh, and, of course, what all that means for their own businesses. Are their businesses showing signs of weakening, which Mm -hmm. in some cases they are? Mm -hmm. Other cases they aren't. Depends, of course, on the business. But I think the number one issue always on the minds of CEOs absent an emergency or some special uh, development Mm -hmm. is the current condition of their business Mm -hmm. and the near-term outlook for it.
1: Is that going to impact M A in your judgment?
0: For those who think that their businesses are weakening or they're going to weaken, mm-hmm. uh, and particularly for those who think that it may take a recession to really solve this inflation problem, mm-hmm. uh, I think they're focusing a little um, at the margin a little bit inward mm-hmm. instead of outward, mm-hmm. which means uh, lesser emphasis on M A options and actions. Uh, For those whose businesses are strong and undimmed Mm -hmm. by the current uh, macroeconomic environment Mm -hmm. and who feel confident about their businesses going forward and the financial condition, they are actually trying to take advantage of these lower valuations Mm -hmm. and they're being more active than they otherwise would have been. So
1: uh, maybe looking at buyers versus sellers, Roger, For large cap buyers, one would think with the uh, equity market prices down and maybe private equity not competitive because of the uh, constraints on financing, that you would see some well-capitalized buyers be a little more aggressive, a little more outward leaning. Is that starting? Are you seeing that at all?
0: There is a category of company uh, which is Mm -hmm. financially strong, Mm -hmm. confident about its business, Mm -hmm. uh, and sees this environment because of lower valuations as an opportunity. And those are the ones that are being quite proactive. But then there's another entire, entire, entirely different category, probably a larger one, mm-hmm. of companies that are concerned about their businesses or are seeing some weaknesses. And for them, uh, M&A is a lesser priority. Mm. Um, the, the other factor I should mention is we're, we're in a very, very different antitrust environment. Uh, I mean, almost night and day compared to two years ago. And a lot of people were just waking up to this, but the the current environment Mm is both in the United States, in Europe and in China, Mm -hmm. especially the United States and Europe, because that's where the change has occurred, is much more restrictive from the point of view of merger approvals, much more difficult. Mm -hmm. And so there's a third category of companies that might like to do X uh, or buy X, Mm -hmm. but are concerned about whether the current, much tougher antitrust environment will allow them to do that.
1: What do you counsel clients in that environment. Say they want to do a transaction, not the toughest antitrust issues, but one that runs into some uh, you know, level of, of uncertainty.
0: Well, they need, uh, first and foremost, expert antitrust advice. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're not antitrust lawyers. Right. We always advise them to get the best advice they can. Yep. Um, and then, depending on that advice, they may de- need to make a decision as to whether uh, they think the risks are acceptable in terms of getting something done. Mm -hmm. And underneath that, in case they might, it might be opposed by the FTC or the Justice Mm -hmm. Department, are they prepared to go to court to try to win, win Mm -hmm. that in court? Mm -hmm. Um, I might, I might say that the, the new sheriffs in town, the head of the FTC, Lena Kahn, and the head of the antitrust, uh, the assistant attorney general for antitrust, Jonathan Cantor, have already been successful from their point of view, from their point of view, Mm -hmm. because they've their reputations precede them, their anti-merger reputations, mm-hmm. and they have deterred a number of situations which otherwise would have gone forward, but for the expectation now that they won't be able to get them approved.
1: Well, a lot of uh, observations from the large-cap uh, point of view, Roger, we do advise a lot of mid-cap clients, and we just heard from Krishna that the economic environment is likely to be uncertain and choppy for a little while. Are boardrooms, are, are they uh, those companies we're down 30, 40, 50% more open to thinking about selling? Or are they thinking that the market is returning? There's a school of thought that COVID overinflated prices values, right. and values. Is it, what's where, What's where? what are you seeing from the sell side?
0: Well, I think that's very much a, a case by case situation, Bill. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a lot, Naveen uh, has observed this to me several mm-hmm. times, a lot of companies, never believed the higher valuations, even though those valuations applied to them, oh. you know, a lot of situations which were 8, 10, 12 times or more mm-hmm. revenue, um, and can live with the current valuations because they actually, at least in private, think they're more realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are companies that think, I don't think there are that many of them, but they think they are going to return any minute to the prior higher valuations, mm-hmm. and so they don't want to sell. And then you have the uh, related issue, which is, If your valuation is down sharply Mm. and you have enough financial capacity to keep going, it's not as if you're on the brink of failure, it's hard to sell for cash. Uh, And it's much easier (laughs) to sell for stock because your shareholder isn't
1: Hmm.
0: uh, uh, terminating her uh, investment in this situation. She's exchanging it ideally for a better equity compared to the one she had. So it's, it's a different type of mentality for the seller if it's stock. So you're going to see and have seen mm. more stock used and from the point of view of the people who use the stock, the buyers, mm. if they want to, they can turn right around and buy the stock back after the merger, turning it into an, an all-cash deal mm. after the fact. Mm. So I think the answer to your question really is very much
3: case-by-case. Case. Okay, so But if some, I could add yeah. just a quick observation, Bill, uh, if we, we've studied the premiums paid over extended periods of time. Yeah. When you look at M&A premiums, you know, they average around 30% over the last 30 years. Mm. But when you look at periods that are you know, measured shortly after a sharp contraction like the one we've just had, mm-hmm. premiums do gap up you know, in the 35 to 40% range. And that's not surprising, you mm-hmm. know, as it takes a little bit more for sellers to be compelled to transact given their depressed prices. And buyers, I think, recognize that um, and do pay for it. And I think, as Roger said, we are expecting and we're seeing early signs of significant stock-for-stock activity in these kind of compressed periods, which is what you also observe.
0: Now, and you can actually <laughs> advise even the world's strongest companies, financially strongest, mm-hmm. to use stock, even though they normally would never do that, because you can say to them, you can buy it back and turn this whole thing into an all-cash deal you know, in, in, in a longer time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you'll see some companies that would normally never issue stock mm-hmm. because they don't need to. They've got all the cash in the world doing so, in, as Naveen just said, to get things done that otherwise couldn't be. So, Naveen,
1: uh, you're one of the busiest guys on Wall Street because tech M&A is one very bright spot. Why is there so much tech M&A relative to the other sectors, and do you see that continuing?
3: So maybe just to put some statistics around your really good observation, almost 50% of the year-to-date transaction volume has been tech-related, and that's up from 35% last year, and if you look at pre-COVID, about Mm. 20 to 25% you know at a very basic level bill i think you know the simple answer is you know big companies do big deals and tech is big right i mean i think we we all are aware of the you know half a dozen you know trillion dollar plus market cap companies that mm-hmm. exist in tech but when you take the look at the next level down there are 75 companies that are over 50 billion in value 150 companies that are over 25 billion mm-hmm. in value and so you know, big companies do big deals and I think you're going to see that trend continue. Mm-hmm. I think that's a very basic observation. The other observation, you know, is the correction in value has been so sharp and so quick that I think boards have adjusted faster than they usually do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see, usually in prior recessions and contractions, you see kind of a phase sell down. Mm-hmm. It gets bad, it kind of consolidates, it goes down further. In a lot of ways, the valuations have kind of crept back down to pre-COVID levels and as Roger said, you know no one believed it. Well, they were you know extraordinarily valued in the short term. So I think boards are a lot more open to transacting at these levels. I would make an observation on private equity. I think private equity in general, it's complicated right now, given just the um, uh, availability of debt. Mm-hmm. But we've seen a lot of activity in growth-oriented tech buyouts mm-hmm. uh, which have not historically relied on a lot of leverage. And so they've kind of said the underlying health of the business is strong. They're paying a lot less than they were, sponsors were, than before. Mm-hmm. And I think boards are kind of you know, playing along. And I think the last observation is around how important techs become to every sector. Um, and I think the exposure of software is highly sought after. Um, and uh, and we're seeing a lot of our traditional clients mm-hmm. um, expanded to tech in a very meaningful way. In whether that was Striker buying Vocera or, um, you know, dozens of other transactions that have kind of played played yeah, out. Yeah.
0: And just in terms of Evercore coverage, we now have FinTech, AutoTech, MedTech, and technology is just pervasive.
1: I think we even have food tech. But that's, <laughs> well, that's your lunch. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> so, Naveen, uh, you, you mentioned private equity. And there was a period of time this summer where things just got quiet. The the, the high yield market was quiet. There was the discussions of, of direct lending. Where do you, we're starting to see some green shoots, some mid-cap LBOs. Where do you see the LBO market going?
3: You know, um, I think there's been a lot of press around the large transactions that were committed in terms of financing mm-hmm. before the sharp correction and increase in rates uh, that were effectively hung. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there is a veritable kind of pig going through the snake as we speak. But it is, I think, you know, most of those deals are kind of at the tail end, and they're getting done. They're getting done at... You know, significantly higher interest rates and mm. a lot of pain for mm-hmm. the banks that underwrote it. But once that clears, um, I think we're going to see a little bit of a reset mm. uh, at different levels of financing, different levels of leverage. I don't think you're going to see the same seven, eight times mm. debt to EBITDA plus preferreds on top. Mm. Um, but you're going to see a lot more moderate leverage at much higher costs. But the targets are also a lot cheaper. So mm. where that math shakes out, I think is going to be interesting to watch in the next period of time. Um, as we all know, there's Probably more capital equity private equity on the sidelines than there ever has been in the history of the world mm-hmm. uh, and they are incentivized to you know continue to do smart deals and I think we're going to see them come out. I do think the market will test itself with a few very high quality deals before you know it really opens up in the way it was before so I think it's going to be a slow start uh, mm-hmm. but we do expect to see a fair amount of activity to your question on private lending um, you know I-, I would say what we've seen is a a lot of um, transaction activity in the sub five billion dollar range, mm-hmm. which is, I think, where the private lenders are comfortable loaning up to. And again, you know, for those who uh, haven't followed that closely, this is where a single lender lends the entirety of the capital stack um, to to sponsors to take companies private. And I think that will slowly creep up over time. You know, I just don't Especially see a lot of
0: non bank lenders.
3: Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are the Blackstones, Aries, Apollos. Uh, mm-hmm. rocks of the world, and I think that trend is inexorable and it's going to continue for the next
1: decade. What ending do you think we're in on that? Because it's a great thing from a deal practitioner perspective to have someone speak for the entire debt. You take a risk out potentially between sign and close,
3: but it doesn't seem to be there quite yet, but it could be a game changer. Where do you think we are? I think we're in the very early stages, Mm -hmm. and I think the Scale of the transactions are still in you know the sub five billion dollar range, and mm-hmm. I think you're going to see that creep up gradually mm-hmm. over time. Um, I think to do a to have a ten billion dollar go private today, you do need you know a syndicated market because th- there's not enough depth. Mm-hmm. But I think as capital flows into the into this asset class, you are going to see a lot more.
1: So there's been a lot of talk about the companies that have gone public via SPAC. Uh, some of them have had difficulties with valuation and. Maybe not a clear path forward, but some really good companies. Uh, do you think that's going to be a source of M&A? Because these are high-growth companies, low value. Maybe not quite uh, a place to get into them in a real way from an equity perspective yet. But there's only early innings of on M&A. What do you, what's your take on those companies?
3: You know, I think it's really um, case specific. Um, mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of companies that went public through SPACs that never should be public, mm-hmm. and I think there's going to be a kind of a cleanup. And a washout of that sector. They yet others who went public and need a lot of cash, mm-hmm. and if they're not able to raise the capital, uh, I think they're going to find themselves in a distressed, you know, uh, mode to sell themselves. Mm. But there's a there are a large number of actually very good companies that took advantage of the SPAC environment and went public, and I think they're going to continue to kind of consolidate. I think there's still, in the. Uh, as time passes between when they de SPAC and they stay public, the negative implications of a SPAC kind of you know will be further in their rearview mirror, and mm-hmm. I think they'll be more active from an M&A perspective.
1: Another thing for companies thinking to do deals is deal certainty. Now, even with all the maybe financing difficulties of the summer, deals, as you said, Naveen, generally have gotten done. Uh, there's shareholder challenges, especially on LBOs, uh, but it's become more and more part of the game. What are we advising clients as far as making sure they get their deals from sign to close, whether it's from financing or shareholder challenges?
3: You know, um, maybe I'll just make a quick observation that Roger you should add to this. I think the, I think shareholders have, you know, have more of a voice and they do express it, you know, in M&A situations, I think that just puts the onus on management teams and boards to really think through the strategic logic of combinations. Mm-hmm as well as the price they're willing to pay. I think the deals that have been blocked, you know, many of them, you kind of, you know, question the logic of it. And I think shareholders have no patience for deals that don't, you know, um, resonate with where they think the company should be headed.
1: I just think there's a, there's a uh, I mean, action. basically
0: there's three tests you have to be sure you can pass, or you believe you can pass before you put a deal on if that deal requires a shareholder vote. Can you win the vote? Can you get regulatory approval and can you finance it? And you have to be sure you are confident in passing those tests before you move forward and announce something because uh, shareholders really don't like it when you try to do something and fail.
1: It just seems like in today's environment where you have much more of the shareholder base held by index funds, uh, quants, what have you, the ability to communicate the value of a deal is so important so we joke about how so many of our shareholders and uh, cl- deals say we don't like to hear about mergers of equals of scale. Tell me how this this creates value. And I think the out of the box being able to tell you know the market what is going to create value in a transaction has become more important because snap judgments are made by the market, and you can lose momentum mm-hmm. pretty quickly.
3: I think that was a time not too long ago, Bill, that you know you'd kind of work on the press release, and then you know as a banker you kind of. I hate to say it this, we moved on to the next thing, and I think increasingly the level of prep work mm-hmm. to get the investor communications right, and then following through and ensuring that shareholders actually are paying attention, in many cases using your team, mm-hmm. uh, I think has become extraordinarily critical.
1: How about Europe, Roger? It's been we've been talking a lot about the U.S. and tech deals, and in, in Europe there seems to be. Maybe more divestiture work happen, maybe under sometimes under pressure of activists. Do you see Europe picking up, or with the recession pressure? I think it's, it's hard. Down? I think yeah. it's
0: hard in Europe because yeah. of that factor. I mean, economic conditions in Europe, generally speaking, are are, are more difficult yeah. than they are here. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think about Europe's largest economy, the UK, uh, really challenging economic circumstances today, mm-hmm. and across all of Europe, uh, you've got extremely high energy prices, somewhat, well, maybe primarily caused by the war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're so high that it's very difficult for economies to move forward at all, mm-hmm. for example, in Germany. So I think the environment for m a in Europe is a lot tougher than it is here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, there's some other things going on in Europe, and you know better than anybody, that there's been a wave of activism that has swept through Europe and caught up on so many of Europe's very largest companies. And Evercore, fortunately, through you, has been involved with some of those, well, most of those defenses. But just in terms of MA, I think it's hard in Europe.
1: Hmm. Uh, another area that's a development of maybe recent vintage is ESG as part of M&A. Is that impacting, may I ask Univine, you, how you're doing due diligence, what we're communicating? Maybe not so much in tech, or maybe in tech. How, how is the ESG phenomenon and the fact that index funds are our targets changing how you're doing deals, if at all?
3: Well, when the word ESG comes up, I say, call Bill Anderson. You know, no, but, but jokes aside, I think it's a, you know, it is a factor. I think it's um, clearly relevant to investors. And if mm-hmm. it's relevant to investors, it has to be relevant to boards and mm-hmm. uh, management teams to kind of pay attention and make sure they're not um, sideways. And I think it's become a focus in the last couple of years in a way that's never been before.
0: Especially if a buyer is looking at a target yeah. and the target has ESG challenges. Mm-hmm. You think three times before you do that. You didn't used to.
1: That's helpful, Roger. One other phenomenon, maybe Roger, would be helpful. Over the last, I don't know, 10 years, boards have changed so much. A lot more, quote unquote, independence, new people, even activists on the board. When you're managing an M&A process nowadays, are you advising the board any differently given that you may have, you know, a lot more uh, vocal discussion or maybe is it the same as it was?
0: Well, I think boards are much more active mm-hmm. uh, and all over mm-hmm. t- transactions than perhaps they used to be. Mm-hmm. I can remember a time maybe 20 years ago when board would basically rubber stamp mm-hmm. uh, even some very large deals mm-hmm. that the management had worked on. And I think those days are in the past. Today, boards are really all over these and, and, and want to get deeply into them, partly because they feel the responsibility to do that,
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and partly because um, they want to be sure that the deal will pass muster with the shareholders mm-hmm. because if somehow it doesn't
3: mm-hmm.
0: and it collapses, everybody's going to look at
3: them. That's a, that's a great point, Roger. And the only thing I'd add is I think that's a, this is a really healthy development. I think yes. it holds all our feet to totally the fire, agree. and I think it's a very positive. But it
0: makes becoming a director in the first place a more, a more complex calculation. Mm-hmm. You know, I, when people ask me often, do I think they should want to join some boards, Mm. I always say be careful what you wish for Mm -hmm. because you can get into a situation where instead of having five board meetings a year, you end up with 25 in a year because Mm -hmm. of either a problem or you've got a big deal going on and Mm -hmm. it requires a lot of special board meetings or activism surges against you or whatever it may be. So I think the whole concept of Mm -hmm. being a a public company director Mm -hmm. has really changed over the last generation.
1: Yeah, look. I I think just watching especially in the tech sector I mean you're seeing more and more situations where the uh, an activist will come in often at the behest of maybe a financial or or even a strategic buyer and now the activists have private equity arms and it's it's become complicated for boards so boards have to be prepared for approaches and how they deal with them it happens pretty quickly do you think the state of preparation, Naveen, has gotten better too as far as boards knowing their value, how they'd respond to an approach, or is that still have some work to do? I think most
3: management teams and by mm-hmm. extension boards view, you know, defense broadly defined um, mm-hmm. as kind of a critical risk management exercise mm-hmm. that they go through on a very regular basis. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, again, healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, now, on the note, on the question of, you know, uh, activist funds, having their own private equity funds. I think, listen, if you're an independent board member, it shouldn't matter to you who the buyer is as long as the price is right, right? And and I think that level of discipline, you know, uh, I, I see that being exercised in most of these situations.
1: I mean, what else are you seeing in the deal? Any new deal techniques or developments? Obviously, we talked a lot about how tech is dominating, but anything else on the M&A front that
3: we should be talking about with our clients? You no, know, listen, I think in an uncertain environment, you know, as you know, with all deals, the two things that are paramount are price and certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the complexity of achieving certainty you know, has increased dramatically. So I think techniques and solutions and structural um, um, tweaks to what we've historically done, I think, are becoming more common. Mm-hmm.
0: And in that spirit, mm-hmm. a lot of companies try very hard to avoid a shareholder vote requirement. They structure the deal Mm -hmm. so that they can avoid having a vote Mm -hmm. because they're not quite sure how the vote will go. You hear, you know, there's so much, we we work on so many things. I mean, every day of every week where our discussion arises as to whether this deal would require a vote and how could we set it up perhaps that it wouldn't require a vote Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Mm
1: Roger, you've seen a few business cycles and we just came back from Grishner saying this one may be a unique one in in so many respects. Uh, Can you give some perspectives to our our clients on maybe how this uh, current environment is different and how it's maybe the same as others have seen?
0: Well, um, (laughs) uh, no one has repealed the business cycle and uh, some cycles, in in modern times have turned out to be longer, especially on the upswing side than they used to be. But we're really seeing just uh, another version of the business cycle. In other words, inflation surged, Mm -hmm. monetary policy had to be tightened, Mm -hmm. as Krishna so well knows. Um, And the whole purpose of tightening monetary policy is to slow the economy down, Mm -hmm. reduce uh, the, the strength of demand, so that inflation cools, especially wage inflation, and the inflation problem ultimately gets solved. And that uh, set of events, Mm -hmm. uh, most famously in 1979, 80, 81, and 82, but generally, has occurred many times in history, even in my career. Mm -hmm. So I don't think this particular cycle is all that different. Of course, Mm -hmm. the precise causes of this inflation, Mm -hmm. which so much center around the pandemic, Mm -hmm. that is different, Mm -hmm. but you know, Um, I don't think it's all that different historically. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't think we're going to see, uh, a deep early 1980s style recession, but we may see a moderate recession that remains to be seen. Jury is out on that. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, you know, I would close by saying here we are in New York, you know, we're in the United States. A lot of events of the last year or two have reinforced the extraordinary advantage of the United States whether it's technology, whether it's natural resources, um, whether it's um, lack of external threat. um, And I think the outlook for the United States and the US economy beyond this interim period of are we gonna have a recession or not, but looking ahead a couple of years and beyond is really very good. Mm -hmm. Let me close by thanking all of you for joining this inaugural episode of the Evercore Edge And we look forward to seeing you on the next one.
3: Copyright 2022 Evercore, all rights reserved.